0: Welcome to the Emotional Curriculum, with me, Dr Sarah Taylor-Whiteway. We use language every day to talk to students and about students, but have you ever stopped to think about the impact is happening? particularly on autistic students. Today, we speak to Becky Morgan, whose research has explored adolescent autistic girls' self-concept. We discuss how labels can be empowering, how they found their sense of belonging, and how schools can use this to help them fit in. Welcome to the Emotional Curriculum. Today we're going to talk about your research which explored self-concept in adolescent autistic girls. But first, could you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, hi. I live in Mid Wales and I work in Mid Wales in a sort of very rural county. I've been a qualified educational psychologist for two years now. But before that, I was an assistant educational psychologist in the same team and then went off and,
0: and did my doctorate in Cardiff. So as I mentioned, we're talking about your research, which was done with adolescent autistic girls. Why was this an area that you were really interested in?
1: A couple of reasons, really. So I was really sort of noticing in my casework, so in the young people that I was working with through my work as a trainee, and before that really as an assistant educational psychologist, I found that there was a number of young girls who were, became involved because they weren't attending school and they weren't attending school due to primarily anxiety and in some cases it was quite entrenched this behavior had been happening for a while and then when I got to know the young people and got to know their families some of them were on a diagnostic journey so they'd been referred to a neurodevelopmental team and were in the process of being diagnosed with autism (laughs) as it turned out and so I was sort of starting to notice there was this autistic girls who seem to be struggling in secondary school. That was, I think, the first thing. And that was probably the first thing that I was going to look at was autistic girls' experiences in secondary school. But at the same time, I was also really struck by the language that we use around just young people generally, not just autistic young people. I was involved in consultations in schools where we would be having conversations about what was going on for young people. And I was really interested in the power of sort of language and the way that that was shaping and framing the way that people were thinking about the way that they were responding to a young person's needs. So, for example, if somebody were to use the word manipulative to describe a young person, the outcomes from the use of that word are likely to be very different to if we were to use the word struggling to cope. You know, those two words could be used about the same young person could be used about the same set of circumstances and I was just really aware how the outcome
0: of of using that word could be quite different. What really struck me about what you were saying then is the power of language and your research explores this more but it's just so interesting how a seemingly small thing can have such a big impact really.
1: Yeah and I think it can change the way that parents view a situation. It can change the very... The actual way that they then
0: manage things at home. It's got very real consequences, the language that we use. So this idea of language leads us on nicely to your own research. And could you tell us a little bit about what we already knew about self-concept in autistic hours?
1: Yeah. Interestingly, we don't already know a lot. (laughs) So when I started to look, what does published research literature say about autistic young people and autistic girls in particular and their self-concepts? There weren't really many papers about that. So, in fact, there weren't really any with that as the actual published. I think there was one with that as the actual published aim, you know, to find out about self concept But what there was was lots of qualitative literature around the experiences of autistic young people. And when they're talking about their experiences, they often talk about self-concept as a part of that. I read a lot of papers about experiences of autistic young people and were looking for themes around their self. So self-concept, so how they saw themselves. I think what's really interesting that talked about a lot is masking and camouflaging and which is this idea that autistic young people either knowingly or unknowingly basically hide their autistic traits Mm. in a way that enables them to feel that they fit in. Certainly my research, you know, the girls that I spoke to did describe that quite specifically, but I was really then interested, you know, what happens then if you're sort of Masking who you are, how does that impact your self-concept, you know, I was sort of like, that's quite an interesting question, isn't it? If you're pretending to be something you you want, how does that then impact how you see yourself? But also one of the things that really struck me, to be honest, about the, the published literature was how much deficit talk there was about autistic young people. And at times I was quite shocked, actually, by the tone of the research. Certainly was no ill intent, I'm sure, uh, you know, by by the researchers. But certainly there was quite a lot in the sort of 2000s, you know, the first decade of the 2000s, sort of suggesting that self-concept was very dysfunctional or impaired. One paper I looked at looked at diminished psychological self-knowledge. There was a question, could autistic people have, you know, a fully intact self-concept? I think I was a bit shocked, actually, that the research was almost saying, well, can an autistic person know themselves fully? And um, that really did not align with the fantastic autistic young people I knew and came across in my work. And I guess that led me again back to language. You know, I noticed
0: some of the language being used in research about autistic young people, very deficit focused. It's really interesting to hear you talk about the language used in those papers and saddening as well, because I really feel like there has been quite a positive movement recently to talk about autism more positively and to challenge some of that deficit thought as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the the big changes in the last sort of, I don't know, 15 years, perhaps probably longer than that, is in this sort of the autistic community and the autistic research community in particular really starting to... So there's a neurodiversity sort of paradigm where we're talking about diversity rather than deficit <laughs> So there's some fantastic researchers like Damien Milton and, and others who have really sort of like challenged a lot of the deficit. talk. So Damien Milton talks about double empathy problems. So historically, lots of the research suggested that people with autism sort of didn't develop empathy in the same way that others. And, and Damien Milton said, well, it's, it's a double empathy problem, you know, autistic people. Perhaps if autistic people do indeed struggle to understand experiences from another's point of view, it very much happens uh, the other way around. So neurotypical people not understanding the experiences of autistic people and that sort of double empathy problem. So there's been a really strong challenge from the autistic community to the research community. And certainly there are a lot of papers now that really challenge that. And I read some fantastic papers. I really
0: enjoyed reading and so, to move on to your own study, you took an approach for coding discourse analysis, which is really paramount to understanding your whole paper. So, would you be able to explain to us what this is? Coding discourse analysis really looks at what are the
1: common sense ways of talking that a society has. How do we talk about certain things in our society, and and what impact does that have? Who has the power? out of those ways of talking so who do we give power to and who do we remove power from who gets to say what happens after we say that thing what are the actual physical outcomes of those things so it really thinks about how language really constructs the experiences we have in society and almost makes certain things possible so for example the power of of a later diagnostic label that label what there are certain physical outcomes that happen from that So if you have a diagnosis of a particular thing, you may be given medication or you may have access to a certain resource that you wouldn't have if you didn't have that
0: diagnostic label. So language has a lot of power and I really wanted to explore that. Absolutely. And so you did some interviews with the girls, but you also did journal entries. How did that go?
1: What I realised was that if I was going to ask for journal entries, I needed to provide some structure for that. So the research around working with autistic young people tells us that structure is really important, knowing what's expected. I gave them a sort of like example, a few starting lines. So I said, this is, I want you to talk about this here and you might say this. I found was that the young people that took part in that gave me journal entries that they didn't in any way copy what I'd suggested. So that was good. So they saw it as a model and they were able to produce some journal entries. So would you like to tell us what you found? The methodology that I use, discourse analysis, you're sort of not so much finding things as looking for something. So I I said before about Foucault's methodology, you're really looking for common sense ways of talking that happen in real life. You're you're identifying those and then you're thinking about how that impacts the lives of autistic young people, I guess. So you're really thinking about how does power show up in talk? What might that be doing? And we're not saying that people are using power on purpose in their talk. It's just that language has power. So yeah, I was really interested in the discourses they were using. What I thought about was the ways that a diagnostic discourse, the way that that sort of diagnostic medicalized way of talking, that has a lot of power in it. OK, so it's quite hard to challenge a medical diagnosis. And so once the word diagnosis is used, once we are talking about consultants being involved in producing, you know, or medical professionals agreeing that somebody has autism, there is a lot of power about that. And there's a lot that people cannot then almost challenge. So what was interesting to see was that some of the girls are certainly already, they said, knew that they had autism, which for a start is quite interesting when we think about some of that research, which suggests diminished psychological self-knowledge. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the autistic girls themselves were saying, you know, I already knew that this was happening, but nobody believed me. So they'd researched autism themselves, they'd self-identified as autistic and they described experiences of nobody believing them. And there were a number of the girls actually that talked about being in school and not being believed Mm. and being labelled as the bad kid, the naughty kid. There was a real sort of sense in which diagnosis... They used the power of that to be able to say, this is an uncontested fact, I am autistic and you can't contest that now. And now I am entitled to some supports that I wasn't entitled to before. Much more often than not, diagnosis became a way to access certain supports that they weren't entitled to before. But it also became a way to say, this is an uncontested fact. But they also, there was a very strong sort of normative discourse. So what is normal, that sense that I fall outside of that. So that sort of, you know, themes around belongingness, fitting in, sticking out. In the same as the other research that I'd read, you know, that sense of finding a sense of belonging when they find other autistic or or neurodivergent young people. And yeah, and, and the other type of discourse that sort of I identified or constructed was very much around an individualized sort of western individualistic ideal Mm. of somebody who is living their best life not often the girls talked about their future selves which is very you know expected for somebody in adolescence to be thinking about their future self but they talked about their ideal future self you know some people talked about having a cottage and living with cats and doing lots of crafty things and other people other young people talked about you know the academic achievements they wanted to achieve but there was a tension there when they talked about their future selves and that tension was around will I ever be able to live independently how am I going to do this on my own and a real sort of like anxiety around a future life where they they didn't have adults there to support them. And there was a real tension there in in their talk and a real sort of concern about how they were going to be this ideal best self of the future. How were they going to achieve that when they had autism? So there was a a lot
0: of tension, I guess, in creating that ideal future self. So we were talking about the power of discourse. And from what you were saying, it really sounds like autism can be giving power, the power to say what they want, the power to find people to fit in with, but also stripping power, the power to make them feel different and the power to not believe in themselves and lack of power and belief in themselves because of the autism.
1: Yeah, you're sort of holding two realities here, aren't you? There's mm-hmm. that sort of, I am autistic, I'm entitled to these things. If, no, I am not bad. I am autistic. You know, I am not naughty. I'm autistic. I've been struggling. So you get that sort of power to reshape the narrative around what's going on and the reasons that you know understanding the self even you know not just to other people but you know somebody said I always wondered why I had terrible meltdowns you know really autism she said something like I'm very thankful to autism for for giving me that sense of understanding but also she said that she hates being autistic because it means that she needs support with certain things she means that she struggles to imagine being able to live independently. That's me rewording, but that's what she she was really sort of communicating, and she did it a lot better than I just said. (laughs) But, um, yeah, that that sort of sense of those two truths at the same time. So autism has the power to to provide a, a lens of understanding why and also access to supports. Let's not forget that. But it also creates... One, a sense of stigmatisation, a sense of separateness from those who are not autistic. It presents this this future, the longed for, you know, future self. It almost becomes a barrier to that, a roadblock. There's a lot of journey talk in the way that girls talk about their future selves. And it's sort of, to me, as it as like a roadblock on that journey to mm-hmm. where they want to get to. It's, there's a really uh, great book actually called Autistic Masking that came out recently by Pearson and Rose. And I really like what they say at the beginning of of their their book. So they're both autistic researchers, actually, but they write within a neurodiversity paradigm. They're moving away from deficit focused talk. But they also caution about using sort of like autism superhero type talk as well, because, you know, there there are downsides to that. It's that that holding autism does present challenges for people. Mm -hmm. It does present challenges to live in a very neurotypically designed world. But at the same time, there are some fantastic things about being autistic that people really appreciate and love. And certainly that came across very much when I was talking to to, the young people that I spoke to. And it, it comes across in the research as well.
0: So you did also write about someone that spoke to you about feeling there was a hostile world out there for children with autism or young people with autism. So I wondered if you had any thoughts about what we could be doing to make it a less hostile world.
1: Obviously, the language that we use. My research was about language and so I guess, you know, it would be silly not to say, you know, to pay attention to the language that we use. A lot of the language used that seemed to be quite sort of difficult for the young girls that I spoke to was that it was language used before they had a diagnosis of autism. So this isn't just autistic kids, this is all young people, isn't it? It's about I guess it's about using language and being really paying attention to that. So I guess all people try to do that and I think there's culturally at the moment, there's sort of like an anti-wokeness thing going on, isn't there, in Mm. culture? And, you know, people getting upset about people wanting certain language to be used. But I guess I would want people to just be a little bit more reflective about language we use and how that impacts. And to really think about, yes, if I use this word, then there is going to be an outcome from that. and, And is that an outcome I'm okay with? And of course, it's not about being sort of treading on eggshells and being worried and anxious about everything we say we, you know we have to sort of live our lives don't we but we're all going to be getting it wrong and, and it's just being open about that and saying oh you know yeah gosh I never thought about that I never thought about the impact of using that word and actually is there another way to you to, to view this mm-hmm. because often it's in those reframings in those different narratives that we can create and use that we can get better outcomes <laughs> So if we think about a child as struggling rather than as manipulative, perhaps we'll be a little bit more solution focused. Perhaps mm-hmm. we'll be able to think about what we can do rather than getting into a power struggle, which is what we'll do if we think about a child as manipulative. So I guess that's the first thing. I think the other thing is very much around, and this is something I became aware of myself as an educational psychologist. So I, I recognize that a lot of the advices that I was writing when I was supporting autistic young people, really any young person was, it was often about that young person changing, developing a skill. Perhaps, you know, with autistic young people, we know that tolerating certain things can be quite difficult for them. So we might have a target around, they'll be able to tolerate this, that sort of thing. And I just started to realise that there was a quite an imbalance in how much change I was sort of putting on the young people, just the... The targets that we were putting in place, for example, those targets were really about, oh, we'll see this happening in the young person. But actually, what targets could we put in into the peer group around the child? Perhaps one of the targets is that the the peer group becomes more supportive of the child, that the, the peer group are asking the child to play more, the peer group are understanding the child's needs more. So how can we sort of take the onus for change off just the autistic child, just that family? How can we think about what we can change around the autistic child to support them to sort of be able to cope better in their school environments? There's a lot that we can't much about so the sense that you know smells in the canteen that sort of thing bad acoustics in a, in a school built poorly you know that that's those sorts of things are difficult to to change quickly but we can think about the social community that children are sort of going to school with and how do we support that community to be more understanding so one thing that I'd sort of encourage listeners to go and check out in schools. Um, this is particularly for primary schools. Unfortunately, unfortunately it's not yet been, they, they don't yet have a version for secondaries, but it's for for children in year groups four, five and six. It's the Leans project that Edinburgh University have produced. Um, it's called Learning About Uniodiversity in School. It's a completely free curriculum resource. It's a very extensive curriculum resource. It sort of takes at least a term to get through and it's delivered by the class teacher, but it's a neurodiversity curriculum. Mm -hmm. And it's about teaching children in those year groups about neurodiversity. It's very much based on, it's not really talking, it doesn't really talk about labels or anything like that. It really talks about we're all wired differently. We all think differently. And as a result of that, we all need different support in the classroom. And we're supporting some of our schools in our county to use it. And the young children are loving it. And they're actually starting to, advocate for their peers needs Mm. so they'll say to their teacher oh wait there a minute but if we do this how's that going to be for charlie or whoever so that's about improving equity improving belonging really for autistic children and young people and i think that belonging word is a big one and i think that's ultimately what we need to try and support for autistic young people in school is that sense of belonging in their school community and in their wider community and so to finish our
0: discussion, if there was one thing that people listening would take away from what we've talked about today, what would that be?
1: And I think that schools are good at doing this and try to do this already. But, you know, I think the, the number one message is for us to really listen to the experiences of young people, autistic young people, and to sort of believe them. I guess it's to try and get ourselves out of that sense of, I guess, power struggle that can sometimes happen in schools well in adult relationships not schools, in in all relationships is that power struggle isn't there often present and so it's being aware of that and just really listening in to what the young person is telling you and really trying to empathise. It's really difficult in busy school life when you've got so much to do and so much but if we can create that space where we can really listen in to the experiences that children and young people are having and really respond to that as if it were true even if you're holding that thing I'm not sure that this is really what's going on mm-hmm. think what could we do to sort of like support in in this situation. I think it's a very basic basic thing and I think that a lot of teachers already want to do that and I guess busy days busy schedules get in the way of that but if we can get back to listening when I sort of the girls that I was talking to those those experiences that they described of before they had a diagnosis of being labeled the bad kid of we worry sometimes as educational psychologists I think about labels and the and the impact of those but I think what I learned was that young people already feel labeled but Mm. they just haven't got a label of of, uh, autism they had a diagnosis of bad kid or sort of naughty or difficult and so I guess it's general advice for us as humans isn't it to try less to sort of label each other with with bad labels but yeah certainly with the young people we're supporting to just really try
0: and listen in to what their experiences are and respond to that Mm. yeah and I think that what you've said before about just being aware of the power we have the power to believe someone or not and the influence that could be having I think is really important powerful even
1: yeah no absolutely power is language and power they're just so interconnected it's how we do things in society language is just like the core basis of 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 our social interactions so um so yeah it's and, and it's so invisible isn't it it's so it's there we're not thinking about it a lot of the time but it shapes so much of our lives. Um, so that sort of that focus on language, that focus on power is
0: really important. Absolutely. A really important thing to end on. So Becky, thank you so much for coming and speaking to us today. And thank you for listening. If you liked this episode, then please do subscribe and you can follow us on Twitter at emcurriculum. You can email us on theemotionalcurriculum at gmail.com. See you soon.